The 30th president of United States of America, Calvin Coolidge, once said, quote, The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them in faith if these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country, end quote. The birth of United States and the Constitution was a product of a generation that undoubtedly had their foundation in the eternal principles of God's moral law. The farther away we step from the Bible, the more fragile the foundation on which we stand as a nation. It's Saturday, May 15th, 2021, and today we're taking a look at the following top stories. First, we take a look at the escalating situation in Israel. Then we analyze uh, the skyrocketing inflation in U.S., and the Republican effort to recount votes in Maricopa County. Finally, we dive into the colonial pipeline cyber attack, and we take a look at the reality of pastoring in the 21st century in Canada. Welcome to LifeRing, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Vadim and Paul. Hey, hey. Hello. How, how are you guys? I'm feeling amazing. I recently took a vacation to Nevada. We visited the Grand Canyon for the first time in my life. It was beautiful, amazing, feeling refreshed. Yeah. I was going to say, you almost crossed paths with, well, not really, because... I think Dennis is right now somewhere in that area. Yeah, no, we're already right? back home before they left. Yeah. But how are you, Vadim? Doing pretty good. Good to be here. Well, you're listening to episode number 10. Thanks for sticking around. We hope that our show proves to be a life ring to help you navigate the stream of current events. And if you're new to the show, welcome. We're doing this out of strong conviction that as conservatives and as Christians, we have to be informed enough to offer a commentary and a timely critique on what's going on around us. So we ask you to please consider sharing this on your Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or wherever else you maintain your social presence. All right, so on this 10th episode, uh, the COVID category will not be our top story anymore. Rather, we will present a succinct review of the latest uh, in our global standing with COVID, and then we move on to the top five stories. So here are some of the COVID headlines this week. On Thursday, President Biden finally announced something that should have been clear from the beginning. Well, today is a great day for America. In our long battle with the coronavirus, just a few hours ago, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the CDC announced that they are no longer recommending that fully vaccinated people need wear masks. This recommendation holds true whether you are inside or outside. I think it's a great milestone, a great day. If you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. But if you've not been vaccinated, or if you're getting a two-shot vaccine and you've not gotten your, you only had your first shot, but not your second, or you haven't waited the full two weeks after your second shot, you still need to wear a mask. I just don't know why he doesn't even acknowledge the fact that there's entire states where people have already moved way past what he's supposedly allowing us to do now. And with the idea that, like, you still have to abide by the previous restrictions until you meet like this new random condition. I'm just curious as to why now, 
why wasn't why wasn't this said a week ago or two weeks ago? You know, why was this point exactly chosen? So there's no new studies released. Nothing has really changed. So it seems like for me personally, it seems like there's an ulterior motive. And my personal opinion is because maybe they realize that the economy is crashing and there might be a lot worse consequences if they don't um, pull back these restrictions now. And and that's why I think this is an interesting announcement because we're kind of waiting for that like, okay, COVID is officially over. And I think this is the closest we've gotten to that kind of announcement. And then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, if you're still on your second shot or or if you're unvaccinated, then we keep him on. What does this um, announcement mean for the unvaccinated people? Well, that America, that the United States is still closed because of COVID for them, right? And does it even matter since almost all indoor places still require, like if your state requires masks, it's everywhere. You go to the bank, you go to the store, you go to church, you know, they'll require it most likely. Why the, you know, mandate is not lifted nationwide? Well, there's still uh, the next wave of vaccination that needs to be happen. And that is among teenagers 12 to 15. So now there will be more pressure on parents as a result. Uh, we know the children are at low risk and this barely new vaccine, who's really going to risk their kid's life? Uh, they say about 50, the study uh, by Axios shows that only 52% of parents of a child under 18 said they're likely to vaccinate their kids as soon as they're eligible. Now, the government is continuing its creative efforts and offering incentives to revive the dying vaccine demand. In Ohio, they, let's see, Governor Mike DeWine unveiled a lottery system Wednesday to entice people to get COVID-19 shots, offering a weekly $1 million prize and a full-ride college scholarship, according to Associated Press. And on Tuesday, White House announced that Biden administration has reached an agreement with ride-sharing companies Uber and Lyft to offer free rides to coronavirus vaccination sites through July 4th. The longer we stay in the state of division, mass versus a mass vaccinated versus not, the deeper the division gets ingrained into society. And the way back will not be easy. Speaking of divisions, let's jump right into our first story for today. So the recent news of violence that erupted after months of building tensions in Jerusalem, this is a result of conflict that has been brewing for decades. About 100 years ago, Britain takes over Palestine after the defeat of Ottoman Empire during World War I. And at that time, there was a large presence of Arabs, less so of Jews. Jews obviously, you know, have historical claim to the lands, but so do Arabs, if you go, you know, most recent history, I guess. As more Jews kept moving to their homeland following World War II, escaping Holocaust, the violence between Jews and Arabs and the British rule grew. So in 1947, UN votes for Palestine to be split up between the two, and Jerusalem would be like an international city. So Jewish leaders said yes, Arabs did not like it at all. The resolution we're talking about is UN Resolution 181, and so there was a Jewish politician, Abba Eban, uh, and in mm-hmm. 1973, he's famous for saying the line that uh, the Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. This resolution in 1947 proposed by the UN was their first chance to have like a guaranteed statehood, and they, uh, and they rejected it. Truly, their stalling, uh, in a sense, caused this to go, you know, unfold in this way. Then in 1948, the British rule, they withdrew from the land, and so Israel declares the monumental and prophetical restoration or, the, well, legally was creation of the modern state of Israel. Now, war followed, and thousands of Palestinians were displaced. Uh, more Arab troops arrived from neighboring countries. And a year after the fighting stopped, Israel controlled at that point, most of the territory. Jordan occupied the land which became known as West Bank, and then Egypt occupied Gaza. 
Jerusalem was divided between Israeli forces in the west and Jordanian forces in the east. And because there was never a peace agreement, each side blamed the other. So there were more wars, more fighting, and the decades which followed. Then there was the Six-Day War, and as a result, at that point, Israel occupies these kind of three important places which will become the point of, of contention for the following decades, and that is the Syrian Golan Heights, Gaza, and then the e- Egyptian um, Sinai Peninsula. So West Bank is still occupied. Uh, they did withdraw their troops out of Gaza, uh, but UN kind of considers that chunk still to be occupied for some reason. Uh, Israel, of course, considers the whole Jerusalem as their capital. Palestinians claim that if Jerusalem is the capital of the future Palestinian state, that's the one that did not happen in 1947. So they're still kind of looking backwards towards, you know, that. And we as United States are among the few countries that stand with Israel so far on their claim. Now, over the 50 years that passed, 600,000 Jews now live in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so Palestinians say that this is illegal. And it's a point of great contention for both sides. Now, Gaza is ruled by a Palestinian militant group called Hamas, which has fought Israel many times. Israel and Egypt uh, tightly control Gaza's border to stop weapons getting to Hamas. Now, things went south, so to speak, at the beginning of the holy Muslim month of Ramadan. Uh, what was it? On April 12th, and it ended a few days ago. Apparently, as, as Ramadan went on, there were threats of eviction of some Palestinian fa- families from East Jerusalem and just clashes between Arabs and Jews in the West Bank. These are the top three issues, I guess, that right now that are still unresolved in Israel and with the surrounding countries. What should happen to refugees? Should Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank stay or be removed? And whether there should be a Palestinian state created among Israel. Now, to make a quick comment about Hamas, it's an acronym from Islamic Resistance Movement, and they've been around since 1987, uh, since the first Palestinian. I just feel like and with all the money they're spending on weaponry and shooting all these rockets at Israel, I feel like with all the money they're dumping into it, the Gaza Strip is in its worst economic crisis it's ever been in. If they actually put some of that money into building a future for their people, that would benefit them more than just shooting some rockets, which Israel's going to stop them in their tracks, and that's the end of it. Well, since 2005, Israel is out of Gaza. So in 2017, they basically came to a point where there still was no recognition of Israel, but it did formally accept the creation of interim Palestinian state in Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, what are known as the pre-1967 lines. But the airstrikes constantly, you know, came up from Gaza Strip. And Israel obviously holds Hamas responsible for all of them. In 2008, there was a 22-day conflict, thousands of Palestinians dead, 13 Israelis were killed. Then 2014... There was a 50-day conflict with uh, 2,000 on the Hamas side and 67 on Israel side. And so meanwhile, the whole humanitarian situation for the 2 million Palestinians in Gaza has deteriorated. The Strip's economy has collapsed and there are shortages of water, electricity and medicine. And so now, considering the recent violence that has been going on for the past weeks, apparently the U.S. envoy has arrived in Tel Aviv uh, yesterday for de-escalation talks. The conflict began on Monday and followed weeks of spiraling Israeli-Palestinian tensions in East Jerusalem, according to Associated Press. The increased hostilities culminated in clashes at a holy site revered by both Muslims and Jews. Hamas, the militant Islamist group which rules Gaza, began firing rockets after warning Israel to withdraw from the site, triggering retaliatory airstrikes. And Associated Press reports at least 133 people have been killed in Gaza and eight have died in Israel 
since the fighting began. The UN backed out, right, in the 40s. Um, and then it gave kind of these guidelines for Palestine. It gave these guidelines for Israel and what they thought should happen. And these weren't followed. And so naturally, um, these places were taking over. And so Israel got a bigger chunk. And now Palestine wants to take over the land that was originally promised that they didn't want. And so it, it seems weird because like it just reminds me of the Louis, the Louisiana Purchase, right? In America. So there was this big chunk of land that was originally called Louisiana, but then after the years, it became many different states. And so it would be similar if like Louisiana now says, wait, in 1803, all of this was Louisiana. So I'm going to go and take over all of this land, which doesn't really give you the, the backing to just go and take over all this land. Jews say, uh, you know, we it's our land when, when God gave it to us, you know, way back uh, when the Canaanites were living there. Um, Arabs could say, well, our empires have taken over since that land and were, you know, majority of the recent history were in that land. Italy could go in and say, hey, this was once part of the Roman Empire. We're going to take it over as well. <laughs> it belongs to us. Right. So in the end, like who gets to, you know, come back? Because they actually don't want just the chunk. They they want everything. They, they want to establish a Palestinian state in the whole of the Holy Land. Yeah. To me, it seems like the Arabs almost don't have a long game plan. It doesn't seem like to them it's a matter of like who has a legitimate claim to it. It's just a matter of can we take it over so that we can celebrate about having it before we, uh, before we die and then we're, we go to heaven with 72 virgins or whatever they believe. So Israel is a key country in the world. It has a prophetic significance uh, going forward. And I, I think in perspective, if you look at, you know, I mentioned the 2015 or 2014 and 2008. In perspective, this is not too huge of a story. But it's all inching closer to, you know, extreme conflict. There was also an interesting stream of comments from celebrities and some Democrats siding with the Palestinian refugees. People who are either ignorant of the context or maybe this might be a step towards, you know, siding with everything anti-religious, anti-Christian, anti-whatever, right? It's just automatically they switch to the other side, kind of like, oh, the refugees, right? It's their land and the Israel is at fault and so on. Who knows? We're called to pray for Israel specifically, and so um, I, we, we should also pray for the Palestinian refugees because there's a lot of people on both sides that are civilians that are care less for this conflict. I mean, really all they want is just peaceful life, and so God bless them with peace. It, here in our country, we have uh, peace so far, and, and I pray that it remains that way. I hope we find a, a way to resolve um, some of the biggest points of disagreement I don't think it can happen under this president, but who knows? Anyways, moving on to this second top story. On Wednesday, there was a report about economic environment in U.S. under Biden's leadership. And the numbers that were released show that the economy is out of whack and inflation is growing at much higher rate than expected. So here's a quote by CNBC. Inflation accelerated at its fastest pace in more than 12 years for April as the U.S. economic recovery kicked into gear and energy prices jumped higher. The Consumer Price Index, which is like measures a basket of goods as well as energy and housing costs, rose 4.2% from a year ago, compared to Dow Jones' estimate for a 3.6 increase. The monthly gain was 0.8% against the expected 0.2%. Wow. Now, a week ago, another report came by, which uncovered a major setback for Biden administration when April's job reports showed that only 266,000 were added to the economy versus the predicted 1 million. So we were like 700 
8,000 jobs short. The breakdown, according to Daily Wire, pointed this out. 18,000 manufacturing jobs were lost. This is again of, of the previous month. No construction jobs were added. Unemployment for Americans without any college education increased. Women had a net loss in jobs and about 9.8 million Americans remain unemployed. By the way, the previous report of March jobs uh, being around 916,000 was readjusted to reflect the reality, which is like 770,000. What do you think what do you think is going on with the economy? I mean, what went wrong? So Alex, you mentioned a little bit about the consumer price index. Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that lumber or wood wasn't part of the um, consumer price index. Um, and I think it would add a lot. Um, I think just looking at lumber, and I've been hearing this over and over because I have a couple of friends that work construction, but the price of lumber has hit an all-time high. It's, I think it's 200% more expensive than what it used to be. And there isn't really a lack of lumber. There, there's, It's at a 20-year high. There's still a demand for lumber. So why is you know, why is lumber increasing? Why, why is this happening? And I truly think it's because of some of the things that Biden administration has passed and we are just seeing inflation in the economy. It was interesting because I'm looking at the prices and it says if before it was like 200 to 400 range for like a thousand board feet of lumber, now it's well above 1,000. So if like, for example, a new house that would have cost 10,000 in wood to get off the ground a couple of years ago, now would cost 40,000 worth of wood. That's assuming that if you can even get your hands on the lumber. And the idea is that people are not just buying more right now houses, but they're also decided to build more. I guess that's the reason for the shortage. Well, this is supposed to be an economic recovery, right? You know, commenting back on the jobs, I think the reason why we're seeing, a, you know, not so much jobs added to the market, number one, but also not so much but where a ton of people on unemployment is because of what he has been passing and, and all this, you know, th- there's a stimulus uh, so to say, to stay unemployed right now because of the benefits that you're getting. And many of the states, Republican states said, we don't want the extra unemployment benefits. Like, we're, we're done. We want the economy to, because they sort of foreseen this. Uh, then you look at the extra money that's pumped into the economy. It did no good to anyone because it raised the bar for everyone at the same time. I mean, if it was really for those who needed it, it'd be a different story. But now those who were well off got even more cash and that only fueled their, you know, intentions of going and maybe buying a house or buying an, a, a car or whatnot, you know. And, and and so that drives inflation as well. Now, because of all the shortages, prices are flying into the sky. We're seeing housing, car rental, used cars, lumber, we said semiconductor shortages, all of this, you know, piles on and add a few stimulus checks in there. And you've got yourself a perfect mix of what we're seeing today. Yeah, there's not enough time in the day to really list all the things that are pumping up the inflation, but just look at the stuff that we've already talked about in this episode. Uh, You know, you mentioned the free, uh, that the government's going to pay for Lyft and Uber rides to vaccination points. Like, what's stopping me from saying I'm going to get vaccinated, just getting a free ride literally whenever I want. And then you have all these, you have all these programs that mayors and governors are trying to do to incentivize people to get the COVID shots, like just pulling money out of thin air. You have like five million dollar raffles in Ohio. And, you know, Inslee was Inslee was talking about and during his press conference about wanting to implement the same sort of thing uh, because he's so he's so optimistic about how well it's going to work. They're just pulling money out of thin air. All the funding we're sending to the UN for humanitarian aid in the Gaza Strip. And then, of course, that frees up uh, some some money for uh, who knows, maybe attacking Israel with rockets. And I'm just 
I'm just spitballing here. The funny part to me is that that money is probably coming from a printer. I doubt the government is actually getting the $1.9 trillion that they send out every single time. They're just printing it new and then handing it out and introducing this new money to the economy, which is going to increase inflation. And inflation means only one thing is that we get to carry the cost of this whole mess up. Because at the end of the day, it's going to come out of our pockets when we need to you know, purchase something. And Biden, he will continue to spend his trillions of dollars on making sure that you know his socialist agenda goes by plan. And then, of course, the rising taxes, um, well, they'll be passed on to consumers as well. So we're yet to see prices skyrocket. I mean, this is, this is just the beginning. Once those taxes hit the corporate world, that will be a fun time. And moving on to the third story of this week. Now, the Republican Party had a fallout recently with its top third ranking member, specifically the chairman of the Republican conference, Liz Cheney. The House Republicans on Friday, uh, through a secret vote, voted in to appoint Representative Elise Stefanik. Uh, Stefanik will be responsible for helping craft the conference's messaging. That's the responsibility of a chairman of the Republican conference. And so top Republicans say that her elevation will allow the GOP to focus its energy on combating President Biden's agenda rather than getting derailed by intra-party feuds. Now, the deal is that Representative Stefanik, she's a, she's a Trump supporter, unlike Liz Cheney, who voted to impeach. Now, if you look at the position that Liz Cheney her, held before, you know, it's kind of a deal breaker. If you're at the top and you're supposed to unite the party and kind of push or, or lead forward, you know, party's message and when you're not aligning with the values of the party. Now, Trump, if we look at him, you know, he brought something very important to the political world. He was an outsider. He was somebody who was not in politics. Liz Cheney, for example, she, you know, her, I believe, uh, dad and granddad were both in politics during the Bush administration and, and, you know, leading all the way back. Basically, they were politicians, you know, career politicians. When Trump came in, he brought something new. He sort of brought a hope to stand up for those who have not been heard before. And as a result, uh, Republican Party gained popularity here, you know, in, in recent years. Like there was just this new interest in, in, in the Republican Party. And so with Liz Cheney, you know, being ousted, as they put it, or just simply voted out, this is an important step for the party kind of to focus on clarifying what it stands for. Now, I bring this up as a backdrop to the actual story that I want to highlight. And this is the recount happening in Arizona. Now, I quote from uh, Daily Wire here, Arizona was subject of many conspiracy theories surrounding the November presidential election after it was called for President Biden. Biden was the first Democratic presidential candidate to win Arizona since 1996. Those who believed election fraud was pervasive in the 2020 general election have looked to the Maricopa County recount in hopes that it will be what proves their theory of widespread election fraud. So the state Senate uh, president, Karen Fenn, uh, has insisted that the goal of the review is not to relitigate the election, but instead to spot problems in election administration that could be corrected for future. However, Trump and his supporters have made it clear that they believe the Arizona audit is the first step to re-examining Biden's victory across the country. So uh, some facts, they've been counting for three weeks now began on April 23rd. They're going at a rate of about 20,000 ballots per day. Uh, it is uh, it was reported that on Monday only 19 tables were staffed, uh, where 46 tables was the goal. So they're kind of having some difficulties recruiting people, and that's because they have to do background checks and so on. 
it's a long process. This is a fully partisan effort from the Republican Party. Starting this Friday, there was like several graduations lined up. So uh, they're actually moved all of the ballots to a secure location. In fact, if you want to watch the whole thing, uh, you go to azaudit.org and you can see there's like, uh, I think, eight cameras, live stream cameras that you could watch of the whole process. So um, probably the earliest they can restart now is May 21st. I believe they were 20% or so done. So they still have a long way to go. There is, uh, I believe, $150,000 uh, from government that's been given to this project. Uh, but a lot of it is also volunteer work. Now, Surprisingly, the left reacted by criticizing and throwing random accusations towards the process or the contractors. For example, Pamela Carla, the DOJ Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General, sent a letter to Arizona State Senate uh, President informing her that the count, or the rather recount in Maricopa County, might violate federal law since it's being conducted by a private contractor. She, she went on to say, listen to this. Such investigative efforts can have significant intimidating effect on qualified voters that can deter them from seeking to vote in the future. This is nonsense. She's saying that the fact that somebody's going to look into something and make sure that there's no fraud will deter people who... who, who the, the only people who are going to be deterred are the people who were part of the fraud. People who are afraid to be caught again. This quote is definitely surprising. Um, but I've seen, I feel like we've seen that before and, you know, going back to the Georgia voter rights that were in the news cycle recently, I feel like it's a similar case here where that was the Georgia voter rights were said to be racist. They were said to put people who were, um, in poor communities, um, out of voting. They basically deterred them from voting when that wasn't really the case. And I feel like this is the case here. And I'm actually surprised more people more like media isn't on top of this. Um, I think in the future, my opinion, more of the left is going to start attacking and trying to cancel this um, this whole process. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that they're getting defensive about it. Uh, before you read that quote, I was going to say that it really doesn't, whether you think it's to prove some kind of widespread fraud or just to kind of... Uh, just to kind of sift through the election process, review it, make sure everything's tidy. I really don't think that it's going to expose uh, or, you know, there's some sensation happening about maybe overturning the election. I feel like if the Democrats did that, um, then it was a calculated thing um, and they made sure to make it foolproof or at least as far as review and, and proving widespread fraud goes. You know what's interesting? It's like with this whole thing, outrage about the disproportionately affected, you know, minority voters who are going to suffer from, I guess, these laws. And yet it's not the minority hitting the streets and saying, hey, you know, we hate these. It's usually like the people who are well off. In fact, it was top 100 company or 100 companies gathered together, right? Like it was the corporate world speaking up. That just seems odd to me. And here's the deal. If uh, Arizona or, I mean, in general, Democrats have nothing to fear, right? Why would they, why raise concerns? Let let the Republicans count 40 times, you know, these ballots. I mean, what do you have to fear? Unless there's something wrong. It just, it kind of sets a wrong, uh, I don't know. So wh why this is important? Well, the recount, you know, if it shows any signs of fraud or cheating, it will definitely hurt the confidence of, you know, voting in U.S., for sure. Uh, in a good way, I think. It will spur more checks and probably finally will show that Georgia, Florida, Texas voting laws are not just good, but they're necessary. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome to Lightning Round, where we cover some of the stories that don't make it into top five, but are still important for you to know. So in the world of world news, well, let's begin with Myanmar. This last week was 100 days after the takeover of the Myanmar's military that seized power by ousting the elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi, the prime minister of uh, Myanmar. The current government is basically holding on or the current, like, the current, what do you call them, junta, you know, they hold on or they continue to hold this pretense of control uh, mainly by its partially successful efforts to shut down independent media and keep protests or, or the streets clear of large demonstrations and they did it by, by killing people. Uh, at this point, more than 750 protesters and bystanders have been killed by security forces uh, and there have been numerous arrests and human rights Violations. A girls' school in the capital of Afghanistan has been bombed and the death toll is now up to 50. The Taliban has denied any involvement. In Russia, uh, President Vladimir Putin immediately ordered an overhaul of laws allowing civilians access to semi-automatic weapons after the latest tragic example of Russia's outbreak of U.S.-style school shootings. Uh, they're saying at least nine people were killed in an attack that you, well, a person used a semi-automatic shotgun in the city of Kazan on Monday. Now, it's interesting because it sort of follows, you know, th this is new to Russia, I guess. We really haven't seen these many, you know, these stories. And this is likely inspired by, by the U.S. shootings. The White House press corps is frustrated with the Biden administration's new requirement that all quotes used in press pieces receive approval before publication. So the intention behind this is pretty obvious. Joe Biden is way past the point of speaking in complete sentences, so... This would not allow um, any news uh, any news source to publish anything that he says without it going through the White House to review it. American families financially hit by coronavirus pandemic can now get help paying their broadband bills through a new federal subsidy program. The Emergency Broadband Benefit administered through the Federal Communication Commission gives eligible households a $50 a month subsidy that can be used to pay for broadband service as well as one-time $100 payment toward a device to connect to the internet, according to CNET. So basically K through 12 and, um, you know, parents with or families with college students can apply and get the subsidy to cover their internet bill. So the next story is about education. Um, there's a frenzy for summer school, but it may not be enough. So as most of us know that school has been tough recently, it's been almost 100% remote in some states. And so students have been lacking in the learning that they would receive in schools. And so what's happening now is that there's $30 billion allocated for after school and summer school programs and the latest COVID relief package and districts all over the U.S. are preparing for an influx of students. Um, we're hearing from the districts that there's a real staffing challenge for the summer. Um, teachers are exhausted, and even if you pay them more, a lot of them don't want to work in summer programs. So I feel like summer school is a necessity because of remote learning, and so now teachers are exhausted. They do not want to be um, stuck in summer school as well. So definitely interesting how the story develops. The Biden administration said in a court filing last week, it may reverse a 21-year-old restriction on the abortion pill 
and allow it to be distributed by mail even after the pandemic ends. Yeah, going to legalize abortion by mail. According to Associated Press, Germany's powerful Catholic progressives are openly defying a recent Holy See pronouncement that priests cannot bless same-sex unions by offering such blessings at services in about 100 different churches all over the country this week. The blessing at open worship services are the latest pushback from German Catholics against the document released in March by the Vatican's Orthodoxy Office, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which said... Catholic clergy cannot bless same-sex unions because God cannot bless sin, end quote. Yeah, so much for the Vatican's orthodoxy office, right? And I'm just wondering, like, what's... It's not like it's, um, you know, some kind of non-denominational church that's just like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to, you know, do our own little thing here. They're, they're all Catholics in the end. So this is, um, this is a defiant move. Yeah, it's sad. I'm going to going to hold judgment until I see what the official Catholic Church says about it. So the next story, Apple parts ways with employee amid backlash. And the reason this story is interesting is because it is rare for Apple employees to organize publicly on any issue, let alone an individual hiring, especially since um, Antonio Garcia Martinez was just a low-level engineer. He wasn't a hotshot or like a CEO or a, or a big person up there. So Apple has severed ties with um, this recent hire because he wrote a book that caused an uproar, and that book is called Chaos Monkeys. Um, there are a few passages from it um, in the article and that I read, and so they are a little bit out there. The, the, some of the claims are outrageous, but it's interesting to see now that you know the cancel culture is no longer about hotshot celebs or, or big politicians, but it's just low-level engineers, which I think is pretty scary. Yeah. That means that, you know, it could be, you could be next. Any one of us could be next. The trial of the Minneapolis police officers charged with aiding and abetting in the death of George Floyd, uh, the trial will be pushed back to March of 2022, in part to allow the publicity uh, to cool off, according to the judge. So the next story is CNN ratings are plummeting post-Trump, more than two-thirds of the audience gone. So the drop CNN's experience is profound. On Friday, not one program broke 900K total viewers. Prime time uh, shows average less than 800K overall. Um, for comparison, the network averaged 2.74 million viewers in January. So we're talking about more than two-thirds of the audience gone, Joe Concha said. And this is interesting because some YouTube channels get more views than that per video that they release. You know, So these aren't big numbers at all. Um, and compared to January, CNN experienced a ratings boom um, as former President Donald Trump prepared to leave office and, you know, Joe Biden was stepping in. So I feel like Trump definitely caused a boom in CNN. And now that he's gone, CNN is kind of looking for the next victim to um, make sure that their viewers are back. The upcoming season of Ellen DeGeneres talk show will be its last. and In my opinion, it's long overdue. DeGeneres told the Hollywood reporter that she decided not to renew her contract through next year after she records her 19th season, saying that the show is no longer, quote, a challenge. The comedian plans to sit down with Oprah at some point to discuss her decision, which comes nearly a year after several of her former employees alleged a toxic workplace behind the scenes at Ellen. So following up on the story of uh, the deadly Tesla crash from last week where it was said that the car was on autopilot and one guy was in shotgun seat and the other one was in the back seat. Well, 
According to Associated Press, home security camera footage shows that the owner of Tesla actually got into the driver's seat of the car shortly before the crash uh, in Houston. They're also saying that uh, the autopilot wasn't engaged at the time. And I've read that they've actually drove through the same area and the Isle of Pilot would not engage at it. Like it's, it's impossible based on the, I guess, location and the streets and whatnot. You can engage the assist, um, what is it called, cruise control, but not full-on autopilot. So speaking of this autopilot crash, you know, it brought a bunch of attention, you know, to the whole idea of autopilot and, you know, how safe it is. So there's a gentleman in Oakland, California, a 25-year-old a guy who was arrested after he was seen riding in the backseat of Tesla with no one in the driver's seat. So he literally spent a day in jail. Then he got out of jail and his first thing was like, I'm going to go in the backseat right now. You feel me? I'm waiting for my car to charge, he told in an exclusive interview to KTVU. Um, Essentially, he was saying Teslas are very safe. Uh, the autopilot is very safe. It's been, you know, there's a reason why they've been tested for so long. And I think it goes to show that, you know, even the previous story where it was expect, where it was thought that autopilot played a role, turns out that the guy actually jumped into the seat before the crash. So it was a human error. So in sport-related news that shocked all of the United States and the NFL community is that the Jacksonville Jaguars um, signed Tim Tebow as a tight end. For those of you that are familiar with Tim Tebow, we know that he was a quarterback and he played a mediocre career previously. And so now he's coming back to play as a tight end um, for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I think there's there's many reasons why he's coming back to that team. And I think the main reason is Urban Meyer. So that was his um, college football head coach, which uh, coincidentally, he played in Gainesville, Florida for um, the Gators, which was a hometown team and which is really close to Jacksonville. Um, So people said that Urban Meyer basically brought him on for that reason. And a lot of people are outraged because I'm sure previously in the news, we've heard of Colin Kaepernick. He's a very, very controversial quarterback. Um, he did not get a chance to try out for the NFL again once he was kind of um, rolled off, once he kind of retired. Um, so people are outraged. They're saying, why did Tim Tebow get another chance to play a position that he doesn't even know how to play while Colin Kaepernick is not getting his chance? So um, definitely excited to see what he does and if he's actually good at tight end. Maybe because Colin Kaepernick proved himself to be horrible at the QB position. Is that the guy that kneeled? Or, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because Tebow also kneeled. There's actually this thing called Tebowing. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he kneels, but he kneels to pray before the game. Huh? So yeah, two so, men who are kneeling or starting yeah, to kneel. A lot of yeah. a lot of leftists are saying it's like, oh, like this is discrimination. Like you think that a black guy kneeling is worse than a white guy kneeling, whereas Colin Kaepernick is disrespecting the anthem and the flag and Tim Tebow is literally just thanking God for whatever he just achieved. Yeah, but it it is kind of a questionable decision. It's definitely Urban Meyer pulling some strings to get Tim Tebow on the team. And that concludes our lightning round. So for those of you that are still listening right now, congratulations. You have officially made it to the most interesting part of the show. You know, go grab yourself a cup of coffee, do a couple of push-ups or whatever it takes to 
tune in and to be fully focused. So a little while back, there was an energy grid failure in Texas. And I think on this show, a couple episodes back, we covered it thoroughly. And now along those same lines, there's another um, bipartisan story involving the Colonial Pipeline. So if you have never heard of this pipeline, don't worry. I'm sure most of us haven't until this recent news cycle. The Colonial Pipeline runs approximately 5,500 miles from Texas to New York and is one of the biggest pipelines in the United States as of today. It carries about 45% of the East Coast fuel supply. The reason the Colonial Pipeline is in the news is because it was recently a victim of a ransomware attack and the company acknowledged that its corporate computer networks have been hit by this type of attack by the Dark Side Ransomware Gang which is a Russian hacker group. And so the goal of a ransomware attack is that a criminal group holds some data hostage until the victim, or in this case, the Colonial Pipeline, pays a ransom. The company said it had shut the pipeline itself, a precautionary act, apparently for fear that the hackers might have obtained information that would enable them to attack susceptible parts of the pipeline. I I was just wondering, like, what kind of damage can you do to a pipeline? Pipeline is a pipe. It's got like, you know, I'm looking at it. It's got like the little screw handles that you, you know, open Mm -hmm. to have it flow one way and the other. Sure, there's probably some electronic systems that are now connected to it. But was it really necessary to shut it down? So I was actually curious myself when when I read this first story because my first thoughts were, were they just scared of losing the company data? Um, did they just want some information that they had to be secret? And, you know, I kind of started comparing to other companies, like let's say Microsoft had a ransomware attack. Would they fully shut down all of their offices and everything that they do just to, um, you know, get things in order again? So does a ransomware attack, um, warrant, uh, shutting down the company? completely. I did a little research and found about the Aurora generator test. Um, If you have not heard about this, then please go um, look up the video. It's a little more exciting than just hearing what happens because you could actually see the visuals. So in 2007, hacking tests were done with a massive diesel generator in Idaho. Um, The machine or the generator was the size of a school bus. It was mint green, of course, gargantuan, And it was weighing at approximately 27 tons. Uh, For those of you that are familiar with tanks, it was as much as an M3 Bradley tank. It sat a mile away from its audience in an electrical substation, producing enough electricity to power a hospital or a Navy ship and emitting a steady roar. So I'm going to get a little into the technical details. So a proactive relay attached to that generator was designed to prevent it from connecting to the rest of the power system without first syncing to that exact rhythm which is 60 hertz. But Asante's hacker in Idaho Falls had just programmed that safeguard device, flipping its logic on its head. So basically with 30 lines of code placed to kind of like switch off this relay to keep this generator at 60 hertz, um, the machine began to run at a much higher rhythm than 60 hertz. And it began to puff and smoke and groan. And if it wasn't shut down, it would have blown up. You know, especially near a pipeline uh it would cause a massive fire and shut down and you know who knows what it would do to the electrical system so once again all with 30 lines of code that's why i believe the colonial pipeline did what it did and it was quick to shut down because knowing that like hacking into this physical equipment could cause a lot 
not just releasing some data, but it could cause physical damage. It could cause fires, especially that oil is very, very flammable. Kind of going over how dangerous this ransomware attack could have turned out. um, Do you think the government responded properly or do you think people have responded properly to this cyber attack? I can't really comment on it without doing more research because you guys know a lot more about cybersecurity than I do. But this reaction is a surprise. And we even see that because the ransomware gang, Darkseid, they came out with a statement apologizing for the panic they caused. Uh, So even they were not expecting to cause a complete shutdown of this uh, colonial pipeline and uh, all the kind of fallout that happened after that. And they, in their statement, they say, quote, our goal is to make money, not creating problems for society. Which, if you can get past the irony, this shows that they themselves did not expect this kind of reaction from the colonial pipeline. Look up the Dark Side Gang uh, on their, I think they have a website or something like that. And they have a list of targets they specifically don't attack. Uh, so if you can get past the irony of that, their sense of self-righteousness, it's quite funny. So there's the, so the cybersecurity expert, people, the lead of, of the Biden administration for the whole U.S. said, hey, this is the Colonial Pipeline is a private company and this is a private attack on a company. So we'll defer any judgments on their like paying this hacker group their money mm. that, that we'll, okay. we'll defer me, it to them and we'll there. stay okay. out of it completely. So what they're saying is um, so, so basically the way the government responded is by not getting involved because it's a private sector, right? They did say that going forward with there, like, there was an executive order that Biden signed trying to modernize the federal government's response to cyber attacks, but it didn't necessarily affect this situation. But, you know, I was looking at it. So we have 100, I looked it up, 190,000 miles of, uh, what is it, liquid petroleum pipelines. This was just a 5,000-mile stretch. This is a small sample of what could have happened. You know, what if we face, you know, a major cyber attack, right, where... Not just one pipeline is targeted, but let's say this is a coordinated effort and not just the pipeline, but like some other infrastructures, including hospitals or, you know, energy sector in general. You take down the power grid, you know, on one side of the coast, you're, the disruption is going to be massive. And what this showed is that, you know, we're not, we're not prepared for cyber attacks. And hopefully this will push us to, I mean, maybe even push government more to consider that, you know. I think in general, the next, you know, decades cybersecurity will play a major role. It's almost like the next battleground, if you will, because that could cripple the society in way faster ways than attacking it would by force. So I think both of you bring valid points. And like you said, Vadim, um, you mentioned that the Dark Side Ransomware gang posted on their blog saying that this wasn't intentional, they didn't know. But I, th- I still think it's an issue because they did get in and they did end up having this ransomware on you know, on this pipeline that could have caused a lot more damage than it did. And, you know, like Alex, you know, that's a very valid point. This is the next level where now we could just fight via the internet, via hacking each other and cause, you know, not only loss of data, but physical damage and and harm in that regard. So it's definitely something that we, um, that the U.S. government should look at more. So a quote that I heard that I'm going to read is, no one would ever think the private sector is responsible for defending itself against North Korean missiles said Glenn Gerstel. And yet the private sector is expected to defend itself against foreign cyber maliciousness. I agree with that statement. I think it is well said, if the pipeline were to blow up, it would cause a lot more than physical damage. It would potentially, you know, throw off the already weak economy that we have and maybe even um, into complete failure. 
you know, even if we hate to admit it, we depend a lot on fossil fuels. This would cause many Americans the inability to drive to work. So in a sense, they wouldn't be able to live normal lives. Without fossil fuels and this pipeline blowing up, stores wouldn't have the ability to, you know, have produce or be restocked consistently because semi-trucks wouldn't be able to drive without fossil fuels. And as we saw, planes and airports would also be decommissioned. It would literally be a disaster. Thankfully, none of that happened, but it's still scary to think about. So with the more recent update, the Colonial Pipeline is back in action only after a six-day shutdown. But widespread gas station outages in the southeast could linger for days. Industry executives and government officials warned it will take time to refill gasoline supplies, whether it's depleted by panic buying, truck driver shortage, or the ransomware attack on the pipeline. I'm sure you guys have heard of the shortage of gas on the East Coast and the lines to the gas stations. I mean, it's it's crazy what's going on there. I mean, it's it's made even worse by the panic that's caused by it. You see people filling like like those plastic tubs full of gasoline and like trash bags and things like that, just trying to store. I don't think people realize that gasoline can expire. The panic is making the shortage even worse. Like remember toilet paper from last year? Well, that's crazy. 7 a.m. on Thursday, a staggering 71% of gas stations in North Carolina and 55% in Virginia were without gas, according to GasBuddy, which is like a platform that tracks fuel, demand, prices, and outages. And it says that 49% of the stations in Georgia were without gas. We are still seeing, you know, the effects of the gas shortage or of the pipeline being shut down. Um, people are doing some crazy things. There are long lines for gas stations. A lot of them are shut down. And I guess my conclusion to all of this is that whether we realize it or not, In a second, the whole world as we know it could change. The pipeline blowing up could have thrown the economy in the U.S. into a spiral. And this was a possibility. And if you don't know God, now is the time to turn to God. Because only through Him we can have true security. Because everything is in His hands. And if you already do know God, then now is the time to truly focus on Him. And focus on a relationship with Him. Because as we know it, the world can change in an instant, in a second. So the story I'd like to focus on happened in this past Saturday, just after we released episode nine. I'm sure many people by now have at least an idea of who Arthur Pawlowski is. You've heard the clip of him on Easter Sunday telling police to scram when they came to disrupt one of his church services because they were not social distancing. Arthur is a pastor of a church in Calgary, Canada. The name of this place of worship is Fortress of Adulam, which I haven't come across before. Apparently, that's the name of the cave where in the first book of Samuel, David was hiding from Saul, and it's used as an expression for a group that has been removed from power but is planning to return someday. So this pastor has gained a lot of attention not only for this incident, but he seems to be locally well-known for his stances against homosexuality and abortion, and more recently, COVID restrictions. He's had several brushes with the law, including fines, bylaw tickets, trespassing notices, and court cases, including revoking his church's charitable status. The reasons have ranged from holding prayer meetings in the city hall to failing to wear a mask and staging protests without acquiring the proper permits. In defense of Canada's penal system, a judge did strike down some of the infractions in 2009 because they were, uh, and I quote, precariously close to being excessive and to any reasonable observer, an abuse of power, end quote. It's important to have this background because the Christian community likes to read persecution into an event uh, without knowing key points that lead up to it. So we had an example a few years back where a church in California was evicted from the place they were renting uh, because they didn't pay rent. And people were sending them support money because they supposedly were uh, unjustly forbidden by authorities from gathering in their usual place. 
Uh, so we need to be wary. And when we hear people talking about persecution, we need to make sure we know the facts, we know the history of the people involved. Uh, so from what we know, does it seem like this pastor was overstepping boundaries, maybe in, uh, maybe not even in this final incident, but in things that led up to it? Personally, I don't think that Pawlowski was overstepping his boundaries. You know, watching that video when the police came up to his church, I did laugh. Um, because it seemed like he was very passionate about kicking out the officers from mm-hmm. his church and the way that he did it. Um, it was just interesting because they did come with no warrant. So it, it wasn't justified that they were in and trying to go into the sanctuary. However, at this point, if I were in his place, I don't know how I would react, you know, with the possibility of going to jail, getting massive fines, you know, hurting the people in my church. I don't know what I would do, so I can't really judge, but I don't think he was overstepping his boundaries, you know. No, and it's and it's fine for him to you know show some resistance, but being a pastor, you know, again, this is just one instance. Apparently, you're saying it was from 2009, so this guy already has been you know sort of standing up, you know, to to prove his point, and he obviously you know has put a spotlight on himself. I think to say that this is Christian persecution is too frivolous. You might disagree, but that's that's I do disagree. So this all leads us to the events. So this is all stuff that's been happening before and, you know, culminating in that Easter video of him uh, calling the police Gestapos and telling him to get out, telling them to get out of his church. Uh, so this all leads us to the events of May 8th, 2021, when the Alberta Health Services served out uh, new restrictions on in-person gatherings, which had come into effect two days before. Calgary police made sure that the service organizer, Arthur, uh, was notified of this, so they say. Palowski says otherwise. Whether they were personally notified or not, they decided to hold the service on Saturday without making any changes. After the service on his way home, nearly an hour later, Arthur was pulled over by six patrol cars. The pastor and his brother David were placed under arrest by a SWAT squad and forced to kneel in the center of a busy highway as we saw in the video that an onlooker took. Rebel News has commented that it was clear from the moment of his arrest that this has nothing to do with the virus and everything to do with political control. Because we're in the future, we know that they were subsequently released on bail on the following Monday, even after the jail system stalled and pretended they couldn't figure out how to spell David's name with a W because he's Polish. Um, But besides all that, you know, you had to spend a night in jail. um, And then now you're out while the court figures out your actual charges. Did you guys find any of this surprising? Um, I don't know if you watched the video, they're being arrested. Maybe something I didn't bring up. Is the Christian community overreacting, underreacting? Is a Christian persecution? No, I don't think it is. I don't, I don't think this is specifically targeting Christians across Canada or Christian pastors across Canada. And considering that it's temporary, I, I think that it's just uh, inappropriate to use Christian persecution in this context. Considering the history, what, you know, historically what Christian persecution is. For me, this sounds like a comparison between, well, let's take, for example, slavery in America. What slavery in America was and what racism was to versus what the current generation is claiming, you know, that they're having a tough time with this modern racism are two different things. This is, you said it yourself, it's politically motivated. Is it the beginning of Christian persecution? There could be an argument for that. And whether should, should we put up the resistance, right? So, for example, Live Not by Lies uh, in the original article by Solzhenitsyn, you know, that's one of the arguments he makes is that if only the people who are living under impressive regime would speak up, would resist, would protest when they're being arrested so they wouldn't be quietly, you know, walking away 
but rather yell. And, 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 you know, if there would be enough of these uprisings, then the oppressor would eventually back down because there's enough of an outcry. But because all of these instances happen in an oppressed country quietly, you know, he says that's why the oppressor keeps the people in fear. I can see how this pastor, you know, he's actually doing what the church should be doing, in a sense, resisting while there is an opportunity to resist. But as a pastor, you know, maybe it would be appropriate to dial it down a little more. Now, we know his response. We see in his video how he responded on Easter. Well, would you react in the same manner? Well, you never know until you're put in that situation because you have a church full of people, you know, and it's not only yourself, but maybe your wife, your kids are in there. You know that coming in there, they might give fines, they might arrest. You know, if they're sending that many police, what are they going to do? And so in that moment, it's fight or flight. And so, yeah, he might have responded a little over the top. He might have been emotional with it, but, you know, his intentions were there. And if he would have responded, you know, a little with less emotion, I still think the fact that he was responding and he was standing up was the, was the right thing to do because it, it, it does seem like, they're coming in there to take over a place of worship when they're allowing it in other spots. So how is that not persecuting a church compared to like letting people go to Walmart and gather at Walmart or gather at protests? Just looking back at the protests that happened in Canada earlier this year in April, there was anti-lockdown protests. And so there was a ton of people gathered on the streets and they were walking together and once again doing the same thing as would be in Paulowski Church. They're gathering together. And so through that, some of them were come up to and given like small fines, basically a very, very slight slap on the wrist. And then they were let go. And it was promised that there would be bigger consequences later on, but nothing happened. And so the, the, the only thing that is unsettling to me is this, it seems unjust where this church and um, you know, Paulowski as the pastor, he's getting put in jail, he's getting handcuffed, he's getting his church is no longer um, a nonprofit. And so all of these things and with religion, at least in America, you know, the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I don't know what it is in Canada. I haven't really studied up their laws, but I think with religion and with churches, you have to, especially in a time of pandemic, you have to let people gather and let people worship and you know pr practice their religion yeah no i think i think there's a you know like in in terms of you know stores are open like you could go to walmart but you can't go to church i get it you could sit on a plane next to someone right like yeah you guys make good points let's get back to the story at hand right so what i'm getting from you paul is that when the police came to the church at easter was worse than him being arrested last week and what you're saying alex is that you're waiting for something worse to happen than someone getting pulled over and dragged off to jail after a church service to be able to label it as persecution. I'm just saying that this is not a classic case of Christian persecution. Is it a beginning of Christian persecution? Maybe. And again, we can talk about, I agree with all the points that this pastor makes, right? But here's the deal. He's a pastor. He should conduct himself as a pastor. So Alex, what would be considered, we're not talking extreme levels of persecution because obviously all of us know what that looks like. Can't gather in church, can't gather... Um, you know, can't even have a Bible or else you'll be thrown in jail. But where does it start? What, what, what is the minimum that you would qualify as Christian persecution? Taking away of the freedom and taking away of the life and not being allowed to practice your faith. Those would be persecution. This guy is arrested for defying an order that has to do specifically with the building that he, you know, 
built together with his congregation and they want to gather in. It went against the laws of the current country that they're living in. Are they not allowed to gather? They can still gather. They can even still gather in secret if they wanted to. But they wanted to make a public showing of this. They wanted to make a public case of this, like so many other places that, you know, end up doing this. You could still gather. Nobody's going to, nobody put him in jail for believing in God. Nobody put him in jail because he expressed certain, you know, faith, if you will, or because he's a Christian. He was put in jail because he defied openly the government. We're blurring the lines. We're, we're basically setting ourselves up because when real persecution will come, it will be a shock. It's like we're too privileged right now at this point of time to cry out Christian persecution. We can, we can say that there's problems with the government laws and the way the government, you know, prioritizes one organization over another or business over church. We can talk about all that. But this is not yet the Christian persecution that Christians faced over, you know, time. Should we be, you know, paying attention and cautious? Absolutely. But I also think we should conduct ourselves in a way that is exemplary. I think I can make a case of how this was actually a disproportionate response by the police. Something that I found interesting while reading about this incident with the Palowski brothers was comparing the SWAT squad and six patrol car response to other examples of total incompetence by police in Canada. One prominent example was in Nova Scotia on April 19th of last year. A man named Gabriel Wartman, who worked as a denturist, went postal and began shooting people at random. Normally, reports of an active shooter will cause an alert on phones and announced on radio and television. But in this case, police decided that Twitter was a better way to notify the public. Now keep in mind, by April in Nova Scotia last year, gatherings were limited to five people max. Beaches, parks, tourist attractions were all closed. And police had been authorized to charge businesses who were violating public health rules related to COVID. Somehow, despite all this, Wartman was able to kill 22 people in a shooting spree before dying in a firefight with police. This is an outstanding display of incompetence. And the police in Calgary sent a SWAT squad and six patrol cars to arrest Pastor Arthur. In my opinion, this is meant to send a clear message. The police in Canada, not all of them, but many are taking the imperative to, instead of protecting and serving the public, being cronies of the establishment in imposing the will of moral entrepreneurs and political actors. There is no country closer to the U.S. in methods and beliefs than Canada. We need to be calling things by their names while we still have the chance. Well, that's all for the stories for this week. We are so glad that you have joined us for another episode of Life Ring please consider sharing it with a friend or family member that would benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we'd like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would have the only true worldview. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring, and we'll see you next week.